Today's guest has over four decades of experience in media, events, government, nonprofit. He's got a thirst for life, a positive attitude. He started media companies, magazines, author books, and he's one of the top, most influential people in the event space. Today, we're going to be talking about collaboration artists. Please welcome David Adler. You're listening to C-Suite Blueprint, the show for C-Suite leaders. Here we discuss no BS approaches to organizational readiness and digital transformation. Let's start the show. David, thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. I also really wanted to thank you for turning me on to the the Junto Club uh, from Ben Franklin. Isn't that interesting? You know, I love history and I had not heard about it. And for those that haven't heard about it, David turned me on to it. It was Ben Franklin had a small group of individuals with a diverse set of, of backgrounds and experiences that met on a regular basis to to exchange ideas. And, you know, David, I thought a great way to start was they asked a set of questions. I would like to start with question number one of the Junto oh, Club. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, have you, I, I wonder if I should change my, my affect in reading this, but I won't. Uh, <laughs> have you met with anything an author you last read, remarkable or suitable, to be communicated to the Junto? Yes, absolutely. I am a totally a beast around a book called Social Physics, How Ideas Flow. And it has changed my life in that I've learned all about how to run a meeting from this guy who's been studying it named uh, Sandy Pentland, who, who, who has been exploring uh, the digitization of human, uh, humans who work online. And he's following the face-to-face -face methods. He is creating, he, like, he says, how do you create serendipity online? And how do you hmm. sort of... In, uh, figure out what the flow would be. He talks about when you run a meeting, the leader should not say anything and that the whole idea of a meeting is to be a coach and let other people talk. And then once you have your initial meeting, everyone goes out and explores and brings new stuff back in. If there's no exploration in a meeting, then you don't get to the next level. So it's really interesting how he, you know, he has a whole idea of how do ideas flow? Have you ever thought of that? how ideas flow. I mean, you're in the business of figuring that out. And it's, there's a serendipity effect that you can't necessarily digitize, but you can certainly give people hints on how to do it. But that's the, the number one thing that I, that I love from the Thomas Jefferson thing. And I think that what he is saying to you in, the, in, the, in that first question is exactly what Alex Pentland is saying, is that it's not about being in a meeting and being sort of sitting there. It's, it's taking what you learned in a meeting, going out, exploring and bringing it back to the meeting. Mm. I think we're, I fear that we're going to inflate the egos of physicists, which are already think that everything is physics, no matter what. <laughs> yeah, probably. But I've never heard the term social physics before in this way. Yeah. And, and it, it really, I look, I use it for meeting design. I use it for whenever I do my sales meetings with my teams, I basically turn it into a coaching session. And everyone, instead of saying, hey, you didn't reach sales, you know, we're down 22% or whatever, it's here's the client and group, how do we solve the problem to help this guy explore other options to create more business for your company? It could be so hard to sit back. It could be, so, you know, one of my resolutions this year is, and I've done it with my team where I'll, I'll actually start a timer on my phone, almost like a free diver where I'm trying to build up my tolerance to be able to stay quiet for longer and longer. There's, um, there's a, an author, Liz Weissman, she wrote a book called Multipliers. 
And she has this concept of like, there's these six ac accidental diminishing qualities that we have. And one of mine is the, the idea guy where you, f you assume that if you just step in there and you throw out a big idea, then it, that'll get the momentum going. But when you find is it actually shuts some people up or they just, oh, they yeah. get attached to your idea rather than throwing out you know, their own ideas. Oh yeah. You know, I was at, I was, uh, for a few years, I was a consultant to the state department and I went to um, the farewell we did for uh, for Hillary Clinton, who was the secretary of the state at the time. And she started saying that whenever she walks into a room and gives these big ideas, she get all her staff are eye rollers. <laughs> and so she she decided she can't do that <laughs> because, you know, it's like, oh, no, what is she going to come up with now? And 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 the staff goes and you know that they're not receiving it. They're not hearing it. So yeah. it's got to be a different way of doing it, I think. And uh, yeah, they're not owning it. But but yeah, that concept of social physics and and you know I've read some I forget the name of the book, but it's also talking about the spreading of ideas in the same way that viruses spread, right? And yes, oh yes, yeah, and moods even the moods spread the same way that viruses do in a digital medium. Well, we're we're hiring our epidemiologists for the event industry. Interesting. Who, who has now predicted that the uh, virus is going to sort of fall apart in February and March, uh, even before Omicron. And he said that he put in some uh, some things in there. He is actually doing maps on idea flow hmm. and how an idea moves around the country just like a virus. And it's fascinating to think about it as in the same exact way. And the virus health guys are the ones that are helping us create these maps for idea flow and how an idea travels around the country. It's totally interesting. It's, it's interesting. It's almost, I wonder if people who organize events and meetings and collaboration, if there's a bit to be learned from the intelligence community and propaganda departments that are out there, right? Because Ooh. they know about planting ideas. Oh, they certainly do. Well, I think that a lot of, um, you know, a lot of this is information disease that we end up practicing because we don't have all the information and the intelligence people know that we're handicapped and know how to use the tools appropriately. I mean, it's all about propaganda. Mm. Um, I was, I was at this uh, company called Primedia. No, I was at a company called Macmillan and uh, the head of uh, community, the head, one of the aides to the CEO comes over and says, you know, that was really good. That's the way like the, the Nazis did it, <laughs> which was oh, not geez. a compliment, but it was like, you know, they were so good at their propaganda. Um, mm. It was like a totally left-handed compliment uh, in, in, a, in a bad way. But, but it is, it, 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 you know, these things can be used for good purposes or you can be used for bad purposes. And it's yeah. just a tool. And there's great frameworks and so much knowledge out there. I find a lot of times when you're facilitating groups or collaborations, a lot of it, you feel like you're just kind of, figuring out on the spot. And I, I got excited when you said that you're writing a practical playbook to collaboration and or the collaboration artists, which is yeah. even more interesting. I'm curious, what, what was the genesis of that? Well, the genesis was I've been doing this damn event business for 20 years. And everyone has these beautiful sceneries and these great sets and the food is unbelievable. But it all falls apart at the facilitation mode that, you know, they mm. don't get the the girls to dance with the boys at the junior high school dance. <laughs> and so I realized that it's sort of like selling the razor without a good razor blade. And so that the missing link is what I'm calling 
the collaboration artist. And the collaboration artist could be the conductor of an orchestra, the leader of, of you know, creating an event. It could be the guy that works the whiteboard. It could be the people that are opening a, uh, a project for a company and they want to get everyone to work together. It could be a campaign manager, but you've got to be a collaboration artist. And there are simple tools like listening to other people <laughs> and things like that, <laughs> that actually work and they're not that far-fetched. And so I think that uh, the idea that, that my goal in writing this book on how to be a collaboration artist is to celebritize the collaboration artist. I've also started another organization called it's Collaborate America, where we honor six collaboration artists a year, because I think that, you know, I'm using the model that in the in the 70s and 60s, the chefs that were behind the scenes were cooks. The other superstars. The person that puts on, you know, the new climate conference is a is is a superstar, and they should be celebrated and not be pushed behind the scenes. So I think that that's the next level of celebrity, and I want to sort of show that. I also want to prove the point that everybody can be a collaboration artist, and that they should be teaching collaboration arts in elementary school to let people know how to work together better. It just seems so obvious to me after watching the event industry for 20 years fail at a lot of uh, their gatherings because there's no real outcome, there's no real agenda, there's no way that they get people to talk to each other. One of the things I do at all of my speeches, when I go give a speech now, I go on stage and I say, okay, it's not about me. I want to create thousands of conversations right here in front of you. And so I just have people talk to each other before I talk and have them say, what, you know, what can we do? Introduce them to each other and say, an event now is no longer about how many people attend an event, but how many conversations you're able to, to create at an event. And those interactions convert down into actions that, that people like activities from getting married to new businesses, to, uh, to one night stands, uh, to <laughs> you never know what. And so I believe that that's part of being a collaboration artist is to activate the audience as opposed to just letting them listen like they did for thousands and thousands of years without any feedback whatsoever. So, you know, that's one of the simple things, I think, from a collaboration artistry perspective. And, and you know, it's sort of what happens online, too, you know, sometimes. Um, the one thing, you know, when you I'm not taking any political stance here at all, but when you think about the genius of the Trump rallies, which get into a little bit of propaganda. They they did things like he always come in, would come in late. So people would talk to each other naturally. He would he he talked to people like he was a he was their neighbor, as opposed to you know somebody who's high, high you know highfalutin in a sense. Mm. And that didn't that didn't activate that crowd. So you can sort of see the reason that he was successful in the beginning anyway in terms of some of those techniques. And they were, were propaganda techniques too, but they also could be used for good or for bad. Yeah, getting these collaboration artists out of the shadows and, and up on a pedestal, you know, I, I hope what will happen, because you talked about chefs, when you started putting the glass walls into the kitchens or putting the kitchens in the middle of the restaurant, all of a sudden people realize, wow, this small restaurant has an incredible amount of people in that kitchen. It was yeah. always underestimated what it took yes. to create that experience. And, and I think it's the same with these collaboration artists. You you underestimate how much is, is needed. And, and I think a lot of times, and I've been guilty of this in the past, if you're putting something together, small, medium, large, there's even this question of, do we need a facilitator? Can we just do this ourselves? You know, do we really, is that an expense? But I think if you get them up on a pedestal and really 
you know, put it out in the air how complicated this is um, and how important it is, then it becomes a little easier to invest the right amount of money into these. It's no different than doing your own systems. When you, when you, you guys, for example, go in and recreate the way a company operates, mm-hmm. it's very equivalent to the chef and the cooks and the sous chefs and the dishwashers and all those things. There's so much involved in it. And people underestimate. They think, you know, I think that the purpose of technology is to make what was complex trivial. And that's what happens when you are a good uh, collaboration artist, when you have a project in mind or a solution. All of a sudden, the answer is so obvious after, you know, you, you haven't solved it for years and years and years. And then all of a sudden, a solution happens. And oh my God, it always should work like this. I mean, it's yeah. like an aha moment in a sense. That's the ma- yeah. It's when the magic happens, and and I know that you've had a, a ton of experience in the culinary institute, the uh, um, or industry. What I think that the business world has so much to learn from restaurants, especially if you look at three Michelin star restaurants. It's it's operational excellence all the time, not just some of the time, not just most of the time, all of the time. But then that is held in concert with just top-notch creativity and artistry all at the same time. And, um, you know, I wonder if you've been exploring that topic, you know, what can we take from that industry into business? Well, I, one of the things I do, I have this really sort of fun, uh, I guess it's a hobby, but it's an expensive hobby, is I go (laughs) to a lot of Michelin star restaurants and I take pictures of what they're doing at the tasting restaurants and use it in all my speeches because all of a sudden you realize the future of the creativity of the event industry and the hospitality industry is what these Michelin star restaurants are exploring and you see it, you know, you see new systems happening, new combinations of things that don't necessarily go together that all of a sudden taste fantastic. And it's no different than creating a menu in your office or a system or something like that. I mean, you guys do the same thing. You take two things that you wouldn't think go together and they really do go together and you make it fresh and you keep it, you keep it at the highest quality of, uh, of operational excellence, as you said. And, and I've, I've learned, you know, so much. And what it does, it does from a social physics point of view, it's that exploration that I can bring to something else. Mm. So what happens is half the time when I go to an, an event and I show people uh, what they're doing at a great tasting restaurant, it inspires them to think of what they can do in their own thing, place to make it better. And so, you know, that whole idea of the exploration is not internal. It, it's not just external, it's internal. It's like, oh my God, what can I do? It's like what the brilliance of competition. The brill- what I, I had this magazine for 20 years. I still have it with this new company. And I always use the, the whole premise of my whole company was allowing people to peek over the fence to see what other people are doing. Because most people are so locked into their own world that they don't even realize. I realized that after I worked for a corporation for 10 years and started my own company that, oh my God, you don't have to do everything using like the greatest, um, you know, ex- most expensive way of doing it. The new technology today. What I loved what you said about inspiration and, and bringing inspiration for, for people to connect that within their own lives. I mean, that's artistry, right? It's, it's, it's not necessarily what the artist meant, but it's what does this mean to you and what are you going to take with this art? And I'm curious, outside of... Maybe in addition to inspiration, what are the, the when you think about a really superstar collaboration artist, what are the qualities or what are the most important features that that collaboration artist has? Well, first of all, he understands process and he understands listening and he, he's able to think on his feet. So he can then inspire somebody by his words. If he calls somebody out, 
he, you know, he's he, he, he's thinking on his feet literally all the time. And it's no different than what a great uh, lawyer does. And, uh, you know, you mm. know how to like cross-examine a witness and you're thinking on your feet to relate to the person that you're dealing with right in front of you as opposed to a grand plan. So you're taking all this theory and and bringing it down to the person that you're listening to. I, I, I you, you always watch Bill Clinton, for example, when you talk to a Bill Clinton and he's with you, you're like the only person in the room. Mm. A great facilitator has to be able to do that to an entire room and to an individual because they want to feel it. I mean, it all still comes down to my the Maya Angelou quote that people don't remember what you said, they remember how you made them feel. Mm. And whether it's customer service on a computer system or it's it's the interface, you know, if it feels good or it feels good. The same when you're a, a collaboration artist, you have to make people feel like they're being heard. I use, I, one of the techniques that I use a lot is something called the Jeffersonian style dinner party. I think we may have mentioned it before. And yeah. one of the things I use is an opening question because basically the way a Jeffersonian dinner party works is you bring 12 to 15 people in a room and the leader facilitates the entire conversation. So instead of having, you know, lots of like individual conversations, let's have dinner and everybody talks and you never know who's going to talk to anyone else. And sometimes the person at your left never talks to the person at the end of the table. So what the facilitator does is allows people to have a group conversation. It's kind of like, you know, going to school a little bit. And, and the questions that you start with, you start with sort of a question that brings the conversation down to what it was like before you were 20 years old, because it democratizes a room. So I hmm. always use the first question. There's two questions I like, I like, and they're not highfalutin at all, is what was your first job and what did you learn from it? And so the guy that was the ice cream scooper at Baskin Robbins, you know, learns customer service because, you know, he he knows how people complain and how sticky everything gets and all that. <laughs> yeah. The other question is, who was your favorite teacher and why? And it always comes down to the third person that speaks as, you know, my favorite teacher was my third grade teacher because she or he listened to me as a real life human being and heard me. And that seems to be a common thread. And then that goes around the room and everyone's sort of agreeing with that. And, and it, it gets, you know, it gets to be almost a therapy session in some ways, in a good way. Uh, and it, it gets inspiring for people. Then you take the question from that, that, you know, before you're 20 and you keep elevating it and keep getting it larger to solve your bigger problem once people get to know each other. Because you take that experience that, you know, I worked on a farm and I, and I uh, as a kid and I, you know, milk cows. And then somehow the solution about the persistence of milking cows properly gets into the solution for the bigger problem that you're trying to solve. It's just amazing how we're kind of the through lines go through human. It's like very human as opposed to very technical. Yeah, it's, and it's kind of a bummer that it's such a low bar for just people listening to you as a, as a human being. You'd, you would hope that it would be more commonplace, but it's not. You know, people, it is, people do not connect with each other and mm. people are not facilitating that. They think that, that it could just happen, but it doesn't. It's a shame. And, and technology is supposed to help us. Uh, and it, it can sometimes get in the way. But you know what? I think I might actually steal some of the Jeffersonian dinner party concepts for, you know, we've been remote for 20 years or so at this point. And um, 
we'll do these things like virtual happy hours. And sometimes it, it's not that smooth because of, in a happy hour, you do have a bunch of one-off conversations. But when you're all on Zoom, you're kind of just all on stage watching two people have a one-off conversation and then switch over to another one-off conversation. But if it was more orchestrated like that, you can almost make a Zoom kind of get together a little bit more meaningful in that way. Oh, I think the, the ones that I've been to that really work the best are both the group ones and then the the Zooms that go into individual matching people up and forcing them to have a conversation like with three people. Mm. You can't hide <laughs> and, uh, and and you give them a little of, of, a, um, of a of a guide post of how to how to have that conversation. And, and it's I think it's it's fantastic because I think we're getting we have a lot of Zoom fatigue going on, too. And, oh, uh, big time. So, I found something shocking. I, I've started playing around with um, VR, you know, virtual reality meetings just to play around with it. And what I found shocking or a surprise, at least pleasantly, is the 3D audio, the spatial audio that you experience in there is if someone's kind of speaking directly into your ear, you feel it there. Or if, the, if they're at the other end of the room kind of having a side conversation, whispering, you, you hear that in the distance. And there's something really grounding about that, you know, that you can replicate something in the real world in this virtual space. You know what's interesting also about that? You bring that up. We were experimenting with what well, we were using, these headphones um, uh, that you uh, use for those silent discos in our education sessions. And it turns out that you learn more because the, you're hearing it more clearly. And you also don't need the heavy walls in between. So, so event organizers save a ton of money on having to create <laughs> rooms when they can actually just have people listening through headsets in multiple rooms at the same time without any walls. And that's kind of interesting. But I do believe that that the virtual thing is going to be here to stay. And that, you know, what, one of the things that we've discovered was that a face-to-face -face event is a trust accelerator. So once you meet someone in person once, you can then do a lot of more virtual stuff. What's going to happen, I think, is as the new tools happen, that virtual uh, becomes really like what you were saying, where more intimate and more more trusting things happen, you're they're going to learn to trust online a little bit more, I think. And mm -hmm. uh, you have more of the avatars and things like that, like um, uh, the metaverse thing with Verizon, with Horizon uh, workspaces. I've been experimenting with a little bit. Still clunky, and I still get a headache wearing it. But I think that we're sort of in the brick phone age of that era. You know. Yeah, it's an inflection point. It's going to take a while, and it, and it's not like we're all going to be any you know having VR meetings anytime soon. But it's it's a nice thing to experiment with, and there'll definitely be some meaningful. You know, I could even see from a therapy perspective and learning. Oh yeah, you know, just yeah. so much. Oh yeah, there's all these techniques. Like there, I was um I went to I used to go to this conference called C2 Montreal. I don't know if you've heard about it. it no. It's a great creative conference in Montreal that they have once a year. We put it down as one of our number one at Bizbash. One of our number one events of the year always. And they experiment a lot with um, how people how people behave in uh, situations and how they have meetings. Like they did one year, they had they took like 12 people and they elevated them into the sky. So your feet were dangling. So you have a meeting and you're more vulnerable and you the ideas are more interesting. Then they had a meeting in a room that was all mirrored and dark so that you can <laughs> discuss difficult topics. I mean, they, they experiment with the way people sit and communicate. Uh, they did another experiment where people would take a walk with a neighbor in a rainforest with an umbrella. So you, they created this rainforest and you had to walk around a path in the rain talking to people, to one person. So it, it, it's just interesting how we're all studying 
the new ways of connecting and it's coming down to the old ways of connecting. <laughs> it, it is. And, and it's so much in the event industry. And, and, you know, it's, I, I will admit, you know, for a long time, I underestimated what goes on in that industry. And what I found is in the last five years or so, I've, I now have a lot more people in my network and in my orbit that are in that industry. And, and you had mentioned that we're in the, the golden age of events. I'm, I'm just curious, what is this confluence of things that's happening? Well, what's happening is everyone is saying they're going to these big conferences. And they're saying, I could do this a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> They're saying, you know, the critic in all of us, the critic and all. And a lot of these people in these big companies are saying, you know, I could create, you know, a better version of a CES or I can create a better version of a niche because things are getting smaller, too. And people want to connect more and people want experiences. But so the big organizers are now branching out into creating smaller events. But people are going to face to face events are going to be more of a luxury because you can easily do the Zoom meeting for things that don't really matter as much. But when you really want to, you know, practice, you know, hugging your, your your customers or your employees, a great event or a great trade show will be the way to do it. And I think you're going to see people spending more money on that. Uh, already, people go to conferences like like uh, World Economic Forum and TED, and they're spending a lot of money to go because they want that network. You know, it's it's no longer now about the the content as much as the contact. So you get to meet people that you wouldn't normally meet, which is why people like the event industry. That's why the hallway is more important sometimes than the main stage. Um, mm. And that the serendipity effect is kind of where you where people you know people would say, oh, that nice party planner, nice party planner. It's not really about parties. It's very much about strategic gathering. Mm. And, and community. Yeah. Right. Community. Like that's been one of the threads in some of my other conversations is you know, there, there was, there used to be a lot of, you know, your Elks lodges, your, um, your bowling leagues, like there were all these community features that, that they've kind of dwindled and gone away. And I, I don't know if this is an accurate um, kind of view, but it feels like we kind of stepped away from that kind of community for a little bit, but now it's this return to it's important for a community and we want, we have a hunger, you know, that we're missing it. We didn't realize, maybe we didn't realize that we missed it, but now we, we are, and we have a hunger for it. Well, you know, it's funny. I was talking to some of my um, millennial friends and they were saying the reason they go to events is they can scale relationships because they instead of meeting one person for dinner, they can meet 50 people. If they do it right, they can get to know an entire industry. Uh, so it's a very strategic thing, too, that for to them to be part of their community in some way. And, you know, it's not necessarily just to be a, a number or a, or a widget on, in the community. It's to be some sort of to break through in many cases. And people mm. notice. I like that. Well, David, I've really enjoyed this conversation. You know, one thing I always love to finish on is what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received yourself in life sure. or work? Okay, this is the best piece of advice I got. I had a boss at a company called Prime Media. We own like 350 magazines. And he would tell me, you know, how do you sort of prevent conflicts from happening right away? He said, whenever someone comes into my office and presents an idea, I always say yes, because, and then I ask, well, let's see some more information about that. He says that 99% of the time, no one follows up on anything they say they're going to do. So why start a fight right away? And you can always say no later. And so it, and it also makes you more like likable by everybody because you're not, you know, you're not saying that idea is terrible. You know, you're sort of saying, tell me more about it. And 
if they have a lot of passion for the idea, you'll see it. But if they don't, it goes away pretty quickly. So it's like one way that that uh, that made me. It's part of the whole concept of really watch how you behave with other people, and always be on with them in a sense. You know, don't just mm. you know. It's always smile. I mean, I'm I'm a big smiler, and I think that that's good. And I'm a big. Uh, someone came to me and said, said, you know, you have PMA. And I said, what the hell is PMA? And they said, positive mental attitude. And yeah. I took that as a huge compliment because you can tell when someone has PMA. You have PMA, I can tell. Yeah. And, it, and it radiates. And I think that's one of the most important things that people get when they see you. It comes down to my Angelou in a sense uh, that you make them feel good no matter what you're saying. Oh, that's a great way to exist and perfect timing with her uh, on the coin finally. So I think it's, it's fantastic. David, thanks so much for joining me. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Thanks so much. Technology should serve vision, not set it. At Intevity, we design clear blueprints for organizational readiness and digital transformation that allow companies to chart new paths. Then we drive the implementation of those plans with our client partners in service of growth. Find out more at www.intevity.com forward slash podcast. You've been listening to C-Suite Blueprint. If you like what you've heard, be sure to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss a new episode. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could leave a rating. Just give us however many stars you think we deserve. Until next time.